All right, so Genesis chapter 34. And so I have a quick apology to make, and that is that none of those songs apply to today's passage because I changed today's passage. This is what I Well, I'll tell you my line of thinking. I communicated to one passage, and then I thought, gee, these, yeah, they've probably been working hard to learn these songs all week long, because I know the worship band is just hard at work all week long learning the songs, and I didn't want to switch it up at the last second. I just felt like, well, just, it's fine. All of that was truth, and it'll talk about a little more next week. Okay, so we're in chapter 34. I should get there too. So, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in high school, um, I don't know if your teachers do this, but when I was in high school, we began most of the literature books that we were reading in our English classes with the teacher telling us how this book was banned in like half the high schools in the country. I don't know why, like that was like, and, and they like said it about almost every book. And I... Maybe they told us why, but I don't remember why. I just remember them like making a point of that and me being like, ooh, we go to the renegade high school that reads all the banned books. I don't know, you know? Um, but I mean, I talked to people, and they've all read the books too, so maybe it was all a lie. But anyways, you could say the same thing about our passage today. So our passage today is not one that gets preached on a whole lot, okay? It's not one that people want to touch on too much. I actually read through, well, so for, I, I do various things when I look for research on my sermons, and I go to Desiring God, John Piper, see what he talks about on this, you know, he's got nothing on this passage. And I go to Together for the Gospels, another website, look in there, and normally there's about 10 sermons, you know, on each passage. There was only one sermon out of all of the internet on this passage, and as I did more research, I came across this website that, you know, it kind of gives you a little commentary on the passage, and then it's supposed to tell you how to preach the sermon. I'm giving away all my secrets, right? So, um, yeah, I was supposed to, this is where I get all my sermons. No, just kidding, it's not. And here's, here's how they ended their article on Genesis chapter 34. It's kind of like old English, so I'll, I'll interpret a little bit. But it says, we may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a sermon from this chapter. As a rule, the Sunday school scholars do not even hear of this event in the life of Jacob. So in Sunday school, we skip it completely. It is rightly evaluated by the more mature mind and could be treated to advantage before maybe a men's Bible class, but we cannot venture to offer homiletical suggestions for its treatment. All that to say... Someone might want to preach it. We don't even have a suggestion of how you might do that. So that's what we're looking at this morning, right? So in all my intents and purposes, I was going to skip it, to be honest. And I was reading a book about expositional preaching and how you should preach a book straight through and not skip any passages, and I felt convicted. And I was like, all right, and this was after I emailed Daryl what the passage was. So I went back, and I was like, okay, well... Let's take a look at this bad boy and see what we're going to do with it, okay? So, what are we about to get into? Let me, let me prepare you, okay? What we're about to read is going to be uncomfortable, definitely uncomfortable. And I think one of the reasons it's really uncomfortable is because we're hearing it in Sunday school from the Bible. But the reality is, the stuff we find in this passage is the stuff that comes from the entertainment in today's world all the time, right? So, reality TV, 
um, I imagine that if you uh, were to keep up with the Kardashians or with Jersey Shore or the real world, um, these are shows where a lot of the themes that we're about to read about probably come up in those shows, right? I personally don't know. I don't watch those shows. Kim Kardashian and Kanye came to Jerusalem once because she's Armenian and they uh, baptized their babies in the uh, Armenian quarter. Um, that's about as close as I've gotten to the Kardashians. And uh, Jersey World, maybe Jersey Shore may have seen something on Yahoo News. Real World, I think I saw one episode like 15 years ago. When did it first come out? 20 years ago? I don't know. It's been going on for a long time. Anyways, this is normal stuff. Come on, you know. I don't think it's still out. I don't think anyone would ever know. It is. It is still out, I think. I did a search. I did a search on iTunes. Do you guys know about the real world? Am I just up? No? Yeah. Okay, the real world was kind of like, the real world was the first kind of like um, sleazy reality TV show. And they got a bunch of young guys and a bunch of young girls and they all stuck them in a mansion, like 20-year-olds, some college kids, put them all in a mansion and they lived life with each other, going to bars, getting in fights, having sex with each other, and that was the real world. And that's what we were taught in, up from, it was MTV, and that's where we were supposed to learn as teenagers what the real world was like and emulate what the real world was like. So that's the real world if you're wondering what it was, okay? Anyways, and it, it's pretty accurate for what the real world is, okay? So... All that to say, we probably aren't as like far away from this stuff as we might feel when we first read it, okay? My guess is this is the stuff that you see in the news. That's probably some stuff that you hear in your school hallways, probably hang out with some friends who talk about it, who've experienced it. And I'm not saying it's acceptable because what we're gonna see is it's totally messed up. Everything in this story is messed up. The people in this story are messed up. Which is why I think it's actually really important for us to look at, because we get to see how God interacts with messed up people doing messed up things, okay? So we're going to read chapter 34. Hopefully you're there, you can read along with me. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dina. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, remember, how many sons does Jacob have? It's an important biblical number. Twelve, right? There's twelve of them, okay? So did you know that Dina, Dina's his only daughter. He's got one girl, and he's got twelve boys. But Hamor spoke with them, saying... The, son of my, or the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, 
Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to, our, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then, when we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate in their city of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and let us then, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate and of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the men. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives. All that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> messed up, right? Really messed up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four categories of messed up people that we see here, okay? We're going to start. So a picture of messed up people with people who prey on others. We're going to start with Shechem, Okay? So if you go back kind of to the beginning, you'll see Shechem in verse 2. Here's what he does. He sees, he seizes, he rapes, and he humiliates. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He falls in love. Love. He gets dad to arrange the marriage. He tries to manipulate her angry brothers with a price. He's going to buy her sister. He manipulates the men of the city. I mean, this guy's good, right? He, he told all the men in the city to get circumcised, and they did it. He must have some power. So how does he, he manipulates them by promising that once we do this, Jacob's wealth is going to be ours. Remember, Jacob was really wealthy. He had tons of cattle, tons of animals. And he does all of this while keeping Dina in his house. Right? So after he rapes her, he keeps her in the house. She's with him. 
because we know that at the end they go and take Dina out of his house after they kill him. So Shechem is what we would call today a sexual predator. All right, you guys familiar with that term? This is one of the this is the reason we have a CPP policy. Okay, the child protection policy is because of these types of people. So most sexual predators are men, although women can also be sexual predators. And so what I'm about to say, I'm not speaking just to the guys, I'm saying to everybody. And I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts on sexual predators here real quick. So these are people who see who they want, they manipulate and scheme in order to seize that person, and once they seize them, they use them and abuse them for their own gratification. Now, you might think that this is something that happens, you know, you go down the wrong alley, you know, and this is what happens. But the reality is 80% of adults who are abused and molested and 90% of children who are abused and molested are being abused by someone that they know, someone who's actually close to them, most oftentimes a family member. Okay, so sexual predators act in such a way that they try to gain the trust of their victim oftentimes giving them gifts and being kind to them before they take advantage of them. And we live in a world where this thing that they say is a thing that should not be done is becoming more and more common. And so I want to ask, does anybody know someone, you don't, please don't point, please if there's someone here, but if you know someone who is a victim of child ab of abuse, of rape, of something like that, you know personally who they are, okay? So this is becoming more and more and more common, okay? This is a, a thing that happens in our day and age. And we're going to talk about Jacob's family today. I know that Shechem is not part of Jacob's family. Shechem, you know, is obviously the bad guy here. He's a Canaanite. But just to get Jacob's family on the hook and not off the hook, if you keep reading in just half a chapter into 35, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, seduces his father's concubine and has sex with her. And later on, in next couple chapters, Judah, one of his other sons, has sex with what he thinks is a prostitute, but ends up being his daughter-in-law, who's tricked him in order to get children. So while Shechem is the one that we're looking at, this is not something that's unique to the, just the Canaanites. This is Jacob's family. This is the promised people. This is you know, the people that we're talking about who have the promises that God's given to them. And when we read this, it naturally should make our skin to crawl because it's so messed up. Um, the passage tells us that this is obviously wicked. What does it say? It says he defiled her. He made her unclean by what he did to her. Oftentimes, victims of sexual abuse uh, take a long time to tell anybody what's happened to them. And one of the reasons is because they feel so defiled, they feel so dirty, that they feel like they can't share that with anybody. And naturally, it makes the brothers really angry, right? And we would even say that that should be the response, that righteous anger would respond to this. And they say that this is a thing that must not be done. So obviously, this passage is not condoning it. God is not condoning it. It's wicked. It's not what we were created for. And it's not why God gave us desires for sex and for intimacy. But I want to take this passage and turn it on ourselves for just a minute, okay? I want us to think about the possibility that there's a sexual predator inside all of us. I once had someone tell me that a pastor had said, I see in myself the root of every single sin. 
And I have found that to be true for me too, where everything, no matter how grotesque and terrible you might say, if I trace the ideology, the thought process, the, the, the desires behind that sin back to myself, I can find the same things in my own heart. And I wonder if you can too. So let's think about the sexual predator inside of us. Well, we all have seen something that we want. Okay, and let's keep it in the sexual realm, okay? See something that we want, that we desire. It might be an attractive figure in the school hallway. Um, could be an image on a computer screen. Could be a scene in a movie. Could be a billboard on the way to the airport. I've made a lot of trips to the airport. There's a number of those. And then we do, when we see these things, we do what Shechem does. We seize them. Okay, it's his exact words. He seizes them. We hold on to it. Think about this. How do we hold on to these things? How do we you know, grasp onto them? We fantasize about them. And we use these things to satisfy our desires. Now you might ask, is it really harming anyone if it's all just up in my head? Is it really hurting anyone if it's just what I'm thinking about? And I would say, yes, first of all, it harms you. Because... When you do this, you get a completely wrong view of how God created relationships and sex to work. Neither were created to meet your needs. When you get married, it's not so that you can have your needs satisfied. In fact, marriage, sex, relationships only work properly when both people are fully committed to meeting the needs of the other person. And that's what they work towards. It's meant to be a way for you to love other people and meet their needs, not as a way to get gratification for your own needs. And second, it doesn't take long for these things to move from your mind out into the physical realm. If you think about it enough, you're going to want to start experiencing it in more detail, in more physical ways. And so I said it applies to guys and to girls. So girls... Um, they fantasize, think enough about that relationship that they want. Well, we can be tempted to start dressing and acting in a certain way in order to get those guys' attention and then in order to get what we want from those guys. And guys, let's say you have a girlfriend, you have a girl that you're interested in, you can start, you think, you know, I can keep my thought life separate from my real life. The reality is you can't. You're going to start pushing boundaries. You're going to start um, doing what you know is not right in order to start trying to get from the real girls what you're able to get from your imaginary girls. Right? C.S. Lewis talks about how we can create a harem in our mind where we have guys or girls. And the problem with the harem in our mind is that they're available for us to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And the reality is that's not how real relationships work. So yes, even in your mind, it has a big problem. So if you fail to control the way that you think about the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on your attraction, to stop the desire, if you fail to stop the desire and to see and to seize, don't be surprised when you fail to control yourself in a real relationship with a real person. And you find yourself doing what Shechem does, which is you start manipulating situations in order to get what you want. Start twisting words, putting yourself into situations where you can be satisfied. You need to know that if you don't control your thought life now, you won't control your actions in the future. So first we see people who prey on others. The second category of messed up people, people who live unguarded lives. 
people who live unguarded lives. Now we begin this passage by reading that Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now when we read something like that, it doesn't necessarily have a siren on it, but usually it stands out enough that we should realize the author's trying to tell us something. Now before I even address Dina, I want to let you know that I began with Shechem for a reason. I began with the sexual predator for a reason. Victims of sexual abuse are never in the wrong. And oftentimes abusers want to make them feel like they're in the wrong. Make them feel like this, you had this coming. You deserve this. You're dirty. And I want to make sure that you realize that what I'm about to say does not suggest that Dina deserved or invited or should receive any blame for what Shechem did to her. Shechem and anyone who does what Shechem does is 100% guilty for what he or she does. So I'm not calling down condemnation upon Dina. But I still think there's a lesson here to be learned. The lesson is this. When it says that she was going out among the women of the land, what the author is trying to tip us off to is that Dina is acting outside of the cultural norm of what was safe for a single woman. It was known both in Jewish culture as well as Canaanite culture that a woman should not, a single woman especially, should not just go out walking among the other people groups unaccompanied by a brother or a father or some male chaperone. That's the day and age they lived in. I'm not saying anything about our day and age, and we obviously live in a different time. But for her, it's very obvious to the reader back in that day that she is not guarding herself. She's not living a guarded life. Not necessarily sinning, not asking to be abused, but she is living as if sexual predators don't exist in the world around her. And if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake. And again, this applies not just to girls. This applies to guys too. So how can we, high school students, you, live unguarded lives? Let's think about a scenario where you come downstairs and you are ready to go out with your friends, and your mom or your dad stops you and says, hold up, is that what you're going to wear out the door? And you say, come on, you're such an old fart, grow up. You know, this is, this is what every, all the kids are wearing this these days, right? It's not that big a deal. This is nothing compared to what the other kids are wearing. And you go out the door wearing what you're wearing. Okay, now is that a sin? Yeah, I mean, if you're disobeying your parents, it is a sin. I mean, if your parents are kind of like, you know, you're, you can choose whatever you want to wear, but I would not recommend it. It's not necessarily a sin, but it's not living a guarded lifestyle. Or how about staying out past curfew? Or maybe your parents haven't given you a curfew, and you just stay out really, 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 really late. Okay? Is that a sin? Not necessarily. But are you putting yourself in situations where trouble can happen? Yeah, definitely. I think about my own relationships when I was in high school and think about how many things that I regret wouldn't have happened if I would have just come home at a decent hour. How about dating non-Christians? Is it a sin? No, it's not a sin. Is it wise? No. It's not wise. You're putting yourself in an unguarded situation with somebody who doesn't have the same values as you do. How about attending certain parties? I heard someone say, well, you know, I go to parties, there's drinking, I don't do it. Or I leave when the hard drugs come out. Okay, 
Is that a guarded lifestyle? Yeah, you might not be doing it, but you're around a bunch of people who are drunk, you're around a bunch of people who are drinking, underage drinking, whatever it is, overage drinking, whatever it is, okay? Are you putting yourself in a safe situation? You're hanging out alone with a boyfriend or a girlfriend for long periods of time. Is that safe to be alone for long periods of time? What happens when you're alone with someone you're attracted to for long periods of time with nothing to do? You're done with your homework, you've watched the movie. I don't know. Use your imagination. Hands start to wander. Start wondering. Hanging out with your boyfriend or girlfriend in your parents' house when they aren't home. Hanging out in your boyfriend or girlfriend's bedroom. Not doing anything. Just hanging out in the bedroom. What's the big deal? I don't know. There's better places. Like a hard stool. Down in the kitchen. (laughs) Not next to a bed. Something uncomfortable. How about, let's just go back to the thought realm and your computer, okay? Mom and Dad, I'm going to take the laptop out of the kitchen and I'm going to go check my email in my room. I'm going to go shut the door. Not a sin. If you struggle with pornography, it's also not wise. Because when the door is shut, there's a lot less accountability, right? Or surfing the internet for no reason. I'm bored. i got nothing to do. I'm going to go surf the internet. Really? Guess where you're going to end up? Not where you should be. Or surfing the internet late at night. I can't sleep. I'm just going to hang out on Facebook and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll until I see, I don't know what. It's not a guarded lifestyle. Okay? Now I want to say all these are examples of an unguarded lifestyle. And all of them are not necessarily sins in themselves, but all of them create opportunity for us to fall into sin. So I think we see from Dina, she just wasn't living a guarded lifestyle. Now, if you're someone who has had something happen to you, or you've been abused by someone else, I want to give a disclaimer, which is that this unguarded lifestyle comment that I'm making, it's not to be applied backwards. It's never to be applied to say, well, gee, I guess I deserved what I got. Okay? It's only to be applied looking forwards to say, how can I live a more guarded lifestyle in the future? Remember, if you've been abused, if you've been hurt by someone like that, you don't deserve it. And I hope that you would come to somebody to get healing. Okay? So that's the second category. Third category, people who are thirsty for blood and revenge. So we read about Dina's brothers, right? And at first, maybe you feel a little bit of like righteous, like, yeah. They did the right thing here. But if you think about it for a second, they really didn't. It says that they act deceitfully, they lie, they use, think about this, they use the sign of the covenant that God has given them in order to distinguish them as his beloved people. And they use it in order to sabotage people and to get them not at their 100% fighting best so that they can sneak in and murder all the men in response to one man's sin. That should seem a little over the top. And they do it all in the name of family honor. Okay? 
So most commentators, when you read that, they agree that they went way, 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 way overboard. Okay? It's wicked. It's out of control. And so this is the third category. We should ask ourselves, how do I react when I'm wronged? How do I react when someone I love is wronged? Obviously, the New Testament has a lot to say about that when it comes to loving enemies. It also talks about righteous anger. But we should see that this bloodthirsty revenge is way over the top. And the last category of people we see here is parents who don't lead their kids. So we've got Jacob. And Jacob's a tricky guy. Chapter 32 was probably the highlight of his life. Um, the rest, he struggles. Remember Jacob's life, Jacob's name means to wrestle, right? But another word for that means to deceive. Jacob's a deceiver. He's a tricker. He's tricked Esau, he's tricked his dad, he's tricked Laban. And his sons are really just following in his example, right? Here they come and what do they do? They act deceitfully. They do what they saw dad do for his whole life. And then we've got Dina. We could start to speculate. Why is Dina out wandering among the women of the world? And we could notice that Dina is the only daughter in a society where men are highly valued. It's good to have sons. And she's the daughter of who? She's the daughter of Leah. If you remember the story, as it goes, Jacob loved Rebekah. Didn't really love Leah. He got tricked into marrying Leah. So here we've got Dina, the daughter of the unloved wife, out wandering among the women. And you have to ask yourself, how'd she get there? Why is she out wandering around? Why aren't there any guys with her? Would she have, did any guys volunteer to go out with her, to chaperone her? Maybe she didn't even have that option. And we see that after Dina's defiled, Jacob has no control of the situation. It says, throughout the account, it says, our daughter and we, and, it's, and you realize that Jacob's really not even talking. It's the sons have taken over. And the sons are going to act deceitfully. The sons are going to take control of the situation. And they're going to handle it in the way that they're going to handle it. And finally, at the end of the day, the sons do what they do. They get Dina back. And how's Jacob respond? Thank God Dina's back. Come here, my daughter. Let me comfort you. No, he says, look what you guys did. We're in danger now. You've brought me in danger. You brought our family in danger. How could you do this? Doesn't address his sons. Doesn't address his daughter. This is the father figure that we have here. And the sad reality is that there's fathers out there that are just like this. There's mothers out there just like this. There's parents out there who are more concerned about themselves than their children. And never take the time to instruct their children in how to live a wise and God-honoring life. In fact, there's parents out there who even encourage a little promiscuity. Suggesting that once their son gets laid, he's a real man. Or same thing with their daughter. This idea that you got to go out and be part of the world. you got to grow up sometime. And it's a sad picture. It's not the way that we were created. It's not what parents were created for. And the reality is it might be your mom, it might be your dad, it might be your family. They care more about themselves than about you. They've pushed you towards sin and not away from it. They've encouraged you to cheat, to lie, to get ahead in life. They've never corrected you when you were heading down the wrong path. And so these are the four categories of people that we see. 
people who prey on others, people who live unguarded lives, thirsty for blood and revenge, and parents who don't lead their kids. And like I said at the beginning, it's a picture of a bunch of messed up people, right? And so at the end of the day, I'd expect that we'd see at least one of these categories in ourselves. And when we see one of these things in ourselves, it should cause us to admit that we too are messed up people just like Jacob's family. And oftentimes the question that follows admitting that we're messed up is this. How could God love someone as messed up as me? Or how could God some, love some people as messed up as my family? And so that's what we're going to end by looking at. If we stop at chapter 34, we don't really have much of a sermon. But if we look at chapter 35, we get to this answer. And we see three things in chapter 35. <clears throat> chapter 35, 1 begins this way. God said to Jacob, remember what just happened. Dina's back, murder. Should they treat our sister like a prostitute? God says to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. A few verses later, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And a few verses later, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And he passes the blessing that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, how does God respond to messed up people? Well, we see that God doesn't give up on them. God calls them to worship him. God protects them from harm. And God blesses them. Pretty crazy, right? In light of the messed upness in chapter 34, that that's what happens right away in chapter 35. It reminds me of when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I think this passage helps us to see that when Jesus said that, he really meant it. When he said sinners, he didn't mean people who are a little bit proud, messed up here and there. He meant people who are really messed up. He meant the Kardashians. He meant the cast of Jersey Shore. He meant people like Shechem and people like Jacob's family and people like you and me. And so Jesus calls us in accordance with who God is and who he is so that we might repent of our sin and come to him and experience his grace, his protection, and his blessing. And so in light of this passage in chapters 34 and 35, I want to close by just saying this. I invite you this morning to consider what sin is it in your life that makes you a messed up person? What do you go to when you think of how messed up you are? What is it that keeps you from God this morning? Now, I want you to see in this passage very clearly that no matter how messed up you are, God calls messed up people to follow him. And he encourages them to repent, to come to him, and to let him be their God. And that's what he's encouraging you to do this morning that you would come, that you would repent of your messed up sins and repent and believe in him and let him be your God. Let's pray that he would do that this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not afraid to interact with people who are as messed up as this and who are as messed up as us and that nothing that we could do scares you away. 
And so I pray that we would stop believing the lie that Satan so often tells us, that we are unlovable, that we are unforgivable, and that we would receive the invitation that God offers here to Jacob's family, that Jesus offers to us in the gospel, and that we would receive the invitation to come and confess our sin and to follow you and let you be our God. Would you do that work in our hearts this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you guys Wednesday.